Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 13 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 So they're gone, she thought, sighing with relief and disappointment. Her sympathy seemed to be cast back on her, like a bramble sprung across her face. She felt curiously divided, as if one part of her were drawn out there. It was a still day, hazy. The lighthouse looked this morning at an immense distance. The other had fixed itself doggedly, solidly, here on the lawn. She saw her canvas as if it had floated up and placed itself, white and uncompromising, directly before her. It seemed to rebuke her with its cold stare for all this hurry and agitation, this folly and waste of emotion. It drastically recalled her, and spread through her mind, first a piece, as her disorderly sensations. He had gone, and she had been so sorry for him, and she had said nothing. Trooped off the field. And then emptiness. She looked blankly at the canvas with its uncompromising white stare, from the canvas to the garden. There was something—she stood screwing up her little Chinese eyes in her small puckered face—something she remembered in the relations of those lines cutting across, slicing down, and in the mass of the hedge with its green cave of blues and browns, which had stayed in her mind, which had tied a knot in her mind, so that at odds and ends of time, Involuntarily, as she walked along the Brompton Road, as she brushed her hair, she found herself painting that picture, passing her eye over it, and untying the knot in imagination. But there was all the difference in the world between this planning airily away from the canvas, and actually taking her brush and making the first mark. She had taken the wrong brush in her agitation at Mr. Ramsay's presence, and her easel, rammed into the earth so nervously, was at the wrong angle. And now that she had put that right, and in so doing had subdued the impertinences and irrelevances that plucked her attention, and made her remember how she was such and such a person, had such and such relations to people, she took her hand and raised her brush. For a moment it stayed trembling, in a painful but exciting ecstasy in the air where to begin? That was the question, at what point to make the first mark. One line, placed on the canvas, committed her to innumerable risks, to frequent and irrevocable decisions. 
all that in idea seemed simple became in practice immediately complex, as the waves shape themselves symmetrically from the cliff-top, but to the swimmer among them are divided by steep gulfs and foaming crests. Still the risk must be run, the mark made. With a curious physical sensation, as if she were urged forward, and at the same time must hold herself back, she made her first quick, decisive stroke. The brush descended. It flickered brown over the white canvas. It left a running mark. A second time she did it, a third time. And so pausing, and so flickering, she attained a dancing, rhythmical movement, as if the pauses were one part of the rhythm, and the strokes another, and all were related. And so, lightly and swiftly pausing, striking, she scored her canvas with brown running nervous lines, which had no sooner settled there than they enclosed. She felt it looming out at her, a space. Down in the hollow of one wave she saw the next wave towering higher and higher above her. For what could be more formidable than that space? Here she was again, she thought, stepping back to look at it, drawn out of gossip, out of living, out of community with people, into the presence of this formidable ancient enemy of hers, this other thing, this truth, this reality, which suddenly laid hands on her, emerged stark at the back of appearances, and commanded her attention. She was half unwilling, half reluctant. Why always be drawn out and haled away? Why not left in peace, to talk to Mr. Carmichael on the lawn? It was an exacting form of intercourse, anyhow. Other worshipful objects were content with worship—men, women, God—all let one kneel prostrate. But this form, were it only the shape of a white lampshade looming on a wicker table, roused one to perpetual combat, challenged one to a fight in which one was bound to be worsted. Always. It was in her nature or in her sex, she did not know which, before she exchanged the fluidity of life for the concentration of painting, she had a few moments of nakedness, where she seemed like an unborn soul, a soul reft of body, hesitating on some windy pinnacle, and exposed without protection to all the blasts of doubt. Why, then, did she do it? She looked at the canvas, lightly scored with running lines. It would be hung in the servants' bedrooms. It would be rolled up and stuffed under a sofa. What was the good of doing it, then? And she heard some voice saying she couldn't paint, saying she couldn't create, as if she were caught up in one of those habitual currents, in which, after a certain time, experience forms in the mind, so that one repeats words without being aware any longer of who originally spoke them. Can't paint can't write," she murmured monotonously, anxiously considering what her plan of attack should be. For the mass loomed before her. It protruded. She felt it pressing on her eyeballs. Then, as if some juice necessary for the lubrication of her faculties were spontaneously squirted, she began precariously dipping among the blues and umbers, moving her brush hither and thither 
but it was now heavier and went slower, as if it had fallen in with some rhythm which was dictated to her. She kept looking at the hedge, at the canvas. By what sheer rhythm was strong enough to bear her along with it on its current? Certainly she was losing consciousness of outer things. And as she lost consciousness of outer things, and her name and her personality and her appearance, and whether Mr. Carmichael was there or not, her mind kept throwing up from its depths scenes and names and sayings and memories and ideas, like a fountain spurting over that glaring, hideously difficult white space, while she modelled it with greens and blues. Charles Tansley used to say that, she remembered, women can't paint, can't write. Coming up behind her, he had stood close beside her, a thing she hated, as she painted here on this very spot. "'Shag tobacco,' he said, fivepence an ounce, parading his poverty, his principles. But the war had drawn the sting of her femininity. Poor devils, one thought, poor devils of both sexes. He was always carrying a book about under his arm, a purple book. He worked. He sat, she remembered, working in a blaze of sun. At dinner he would sit right in the middle of the view. But, after all, she reflected, there was the scene on the beach. One must remember that. It was a windy morning. They had all gone down to the beach. Mrs. Ramsay sat down and wrote letters by a rock. She wrote and wrote. "'Oh,' she said, looking up at something floating in the sea, "'is it a lobster-pot? Is it an upturned boat?' She was so short-sighted that she could not see, and then Charles Tansley became as nice as he could possibly be. He began playing ducks and drakes. They chose little flat black stones and sent them skipping over the waves. Every now and then Mrs. Ramsay looked up over her spectacles and laughed at them. What they said she could not remember, but only she and Charles throwing stones, and getting on very well all of a sudden, and Mrs. Ramsay watching them. She was highly conscious of that. Mrs. Ramsay, she thought, stepping back and screwing up her eyes. It must have altered the design a good deal when she was sitting on the step with James. There must have been a shadow. When she thought of herself and Charles throwing ducks and drakes, and of the whole scene on the beach, it seemed to depend somehow upon Mrs. Ramsay sitting under the rock, with a pad on her knee, writing letters. She wrote innumerable letters, and sometimes the wind took them, and she and Charles just saved a page from the sea. But what a power was in the human soul, she thought. That woman sitting there writing under the rock resolved everything into simplicity, made these angers, irritations fall off like old rags. She brought together this and that, and then this, and so made out of that miserable silliness and spite. She and Charles squabbling, sparring, had been silly and spiteful. Something, this scene on the beach, for example, this moment of friendship and liking, which survived, after all these years complete, so that she dipped into it to refashion her memory of him, and there it stayed in the mind, affecting one almost like a work of art. Like a work of art, she repeated, 
looking from her canvas to the drawing-room steps and back again. She must rest for a moment. And, resting, looking from one to the other vaguely, the old question which traversed the sky of the soul perpetually, the vast, the general question, which was apt to particularize itself at such moments as these, when she released faculties that had been on the strain, stood over her, paused over her, darkened over her. What is the meaning of life? That was all, a simple question, one that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one. This, that, and the other, herself and Charles Tansley and the breaking wave, Mrs. Ramsay bringing them together, Mrs. Ramsay saying, Life stands still here, Mrs. Ramsay making of the moment something permanent, as in another sphere Lily herself tried to make of the moment something permanent. This was of the nature of a revelation. In the midst of chaos there was shape this eternal passing and flowing. She looked at the clouds going and the leaves shaking, was struck into stability. Life stands still here, Mrs. Ramsay said. Mrs. Ramsay! Mrs. Ramsay! she repeated. She owed it all to her. All was silence. Nobody seemed yet to be stirring in the house. She looked at it there, sleeping in the early sunlight, with its windows green and blue with the reflected leaves. The faint thought she was thinking of Mrs. Ramsay seemed in consonance with this quiet house, this smoke, this fine early morning air. Faint and unreal, it was amazingly pure and exciting. She hoped nobody would open the window or come out of the house, but that she might be left alone to go on thinking, to go on painting. She turned to her canvas. But, impelled by some curiosity, driven by the discomfort of the sympathy which she held undischarged, she walked a pace or two to the end of the lawn, to see whether, down there on the beach, she could see that little company setting sail. Down there among the little boats which floated, some with their sails furled, some slowly, for it was very calm, moving away. There was one rather apart from the others. The sail was, even now, being hoisted. She decided that there, in that very distant and entirely silent little boat, Mr. Ramsay was sitting with Cam and James. Now they had got the sail up. Now, after a little flagging and silence, she watched the boat take its way with deliberation past the other boats, out to sea. CHAPTER Five. The sails flapped over their heads. The water chuckled and slapped the sides of the boat, which drowsed motionless in the sun. Now and then the sails rippled with a little breeze in them, but the ripple ran over them and ceased. The boat made no motion at all. Mr. Ramsay sat in the middle of the boat. He would be impatient in a moment, James thought, and Cam thought looking at her father, who sat in the middle of the boat between them, James steered, Cam sat alone in the bow. With his legs tightly curled, 
he hated hanging about. Sure enough, after fidgeting a second or two, he said something sharp to McAllister's boy, who got out his oars and began to row. But their father, they knew, would never be content until they were flying along. He would keep looking for a breeze, fidgeting, saying things under his breath, which McAllister and McAllister's boy would overhear, and they would both be made horribly uncomfortable. He had made them come. He had forced them to come. In their anger they hoped that the breeze would never rise, that he might be thwarted in every possible way, since he had forced them to come against their wills. All the way down to the beach they had lagged behind together, though he bade them walk up, walk up, without speaking. Their heads were bent down, their heads were pressed down by some remorseless gale. Speak to him they could not. They must come, they must follow, they must walk behind him carrying brown paper parcels. But they vowed, in silence as they walked, to stand by each other, and carry out the great compact, to resist tyranny to the death. So there they would sit, one at one end of the boat, one at the other, in silence. They would say nothing, only look at him now and then, where he sat with his legs twisted, frowning and fidgeting, and pishing and shoring and muttering things to himself, and waiting impatiently for a breeze. And they hoped it would be calm, they hoped he would be thwarted, they hoped the whole expedition would fail, and they would have to put back, with their parcels, to the beach. But now, when McAllister's boy had rowed a little way out, the sails slowly swung round, the boat quickened itself, flattened itself, and shot off. Instantly, as if some great strain had been relieved, Mr. Ramsay uncurled his legs, took out his tobacco-pouch, handed it with a little grunt to McAllister, and felt, they knew, for all they suffered, perfectly content. Now they would sail on for hours like this, and Mr. Ramsay would ask old McAllister a question—about the great storm last winter, probably—and old McAllister would answer it, and they would puff their pipes together, and McAllister would take a tarry rope in his fingers, tying or untying some knot, and the boy would fish and never say a word to any one. James would be forced to keep his eye all the time on the sail, for if he forgot, then the sail puckered and shivered, and the boat slackened, and Mr. Ramsay would say sharply, "'Look out! Look out!' And old McAllister would turn slowly on his seat. So they heard Mr. Ramsay asking some question about the great storm at Christmas. "'She comes driving round the point,' old McAllister said, describing the great storm last Christmas, when ten ships had been driven into the bay for shelter, and he had seen—one there, one there, one there. He pointed slowly round the bay. Mr. Ramsay followed him, turning his head. He had seen four men clinging to the mast. Then she was gone. And at last we shoved her off, he went on. But in their anger and their silence they only caught a word here and there, sitting at opposite ends of the boat, united by their compact to fight tyranny to the death. At last they had shoved her off, they had launched the lifeboat, and they had got her out past the point. 
McAllister told the story, and though they only caught a word here and there, they were conscious all the time of their father, how he leant forward, how he brought his voice into tune with McAllister's voice, how, puffing at his pipe, and looking there and there where McAllister pointed, he relished the thought of the storm, and the dark night, and the fishermen striving there. He liked that men should labour and sweat on the windy beach at night, pitting muscle and brain against the waves and the wind. He liked men to work like that, and women to keep house, and sit beside sleeping children indoors, while men were drowned, out there in a storm. So James could tell, so Cam could tell. They looked at him, they looked at each other. From his toss, and his vigilance, and the ring in his voice, and the little tinge of Scottish accent which came into his voice, making him seem like a peasant himself, as he questioned McAllister about the eleven ships that had been driven into the bay in a storm. Three had sunk. He looked proudly where McAllister pointed. And Cam thought, feeling proud of him, without knowing quite why. Had he been there, he would have launched the lifeboat. He would have reached the wreck, Cam thought. He was so brave, he was so adventurous, Cam thought. But she remembered. There was the compact, to resist tyranny to the death. Their grievance weighed them down. They had been forced. They had been bidden. He had borne them down once more with his gloom and his authority, making them do his bidding, on this fine morning, come, because he wished it, carrying these parcels to the lighthouse. Take part in these rites he went through for his own pleasure in memory of dead people, which they hated, so that they lagged after him, all the pleasure of the day was spoilt. Yes, the breeze was freshening, the boat was leaning, the water was sliced sharply and fell away in green cascades, in bubbles, in cataracts. Cam looked down into the foam, into the sea with all its treasure in it, and its speed hypnotised her, and the tie between her and James sagged a little. It slackened a little. She began to think, how fast it goes! Where are we going? And the movement hypnotised her. While James, with his eye fixed on the sail and on the horizon, steered grimly. But he began to think, as he steered, that he might escape. He might be quit of it all. They might land somewhere and be free then. Both of them, looking at each other for a moment, had a sense of escape and exultation, what with the speed and the change. But the breeze bred in Mr. Ramsay too the same excitement, and, as old McAllister turned to fling his line overboard, he cried out aloud, We perished! and then again, each alone. And then, with his usual spasm of repentance or shyness, pulled himself up and waved his hand towards the shore. "'See the little house,' he said, pointing, wishing Cam to look. She raised herself reluctantly and looked. But which was it? She could no longer make out, there on the hillside, which was their house. All looked distant and peaceful and strange. The shore seemed refined, far away, unreal. Already the little distance they had sailed had put them far from it, and given it the changed look, 
the composed look of something receding in which one has no longer any part. Which was their house? She could not see it. But I beneath a rougher sea, Mr. Ramsay murmured. He had found the house, and so seeing it, he had also seen himself there. He had seen himself walking on the terrace alone. He was walking up and down between the urns, and he seemed to himself very old and bowed. Sitting in the boat, he bowed, he crouched himself, acting instantly his part, the part of a desolate man, widowed, bereft, and so called up before him in hosts people sympathising with him, staged for himself as he sat in the boat, a little drama, which required of him decrepitude and exhaustion and sorrow. He raised his hands and looked at the thinness of them to confirm his dream. And then there was given him in abundance women's sympathy, and he imagined how they would soothe him and sympathise with him, and so getting in his dream some reflection of the exquisite pleasure women's sympathy was to him, he sighed, and said gently and mournfully, But I beneath the rougher sea was whelmed in deeper gulfs than he so that the mournful words were heard quite clearly by them all. Cam half started on her seat. It shocked her. It outraged her. The movement roused her father, and he shuddered and broke off, exclaiming, Look! Look! So urgently that James also turned his head to look over his shoulder at the island. They all looked. They looked at the island. But Cam could see nothing. She was thinking how all those paths and the lawn, thick and knotted with the lives they had lived there, were gone, were rubbed out, were past, were unreal, and now this was real—the boat and the sail with its patch, McAllister with his earrings, the noise of the waves—all this was real. Thinking this, she was murmuring to herself, We perished, each alone for her father's words broke and broke again in her mind, when her father, seeing her gazing so vaguely, began to tease her. "'Didn't she know the points of the compass?' he asked. "'Didn't she know the north from the south? Did she really think they lived right out there?' And he pointed again, and showed her where their house was, there, by those trees. He wished she would try to be more accurate. He said, "'Tell me.' which is east, which is west," he said, half laughing at her, half scolding her, for he could not understand the state of mind of any one, not absolutely imbecile, who did not know the points of the compass. Yet she did not know. And seeing her gazing, with her vague, now rather frightened eyes, fixed where no house was, Mr. Ramsay forgot his dream, how he walked up and down between the urns on the terrace, how the arms were stretched out to him. He thought, women are always like that. The vagueness of their minds is hopeless. It was a thing he had never been able to understand. But so it was. It had been so with her, his wife. They could not keep anything clearly fixed in their minds. But he had been wrong to be angry with her. Moreover, did he not rather like this vagueness in women? It was part of their extraordinary charm. I will make her smile at me, he thought. She looks frightened. She was so silent. 
he clutched his fingers and determined that his voice and his face and all the quick expressive gestures which had been at his command making people pity him and praise him all these years should subdue themselves he would make her smile at him he would find some simple easy thing to say to her but what for wrapped up in his work as he was he forgot the sort of thing one said there was a puppy they had a puppy who was looking after the puppy to-day he asked yes thought james pitilessly seeing his sister's head against the sail now she will give way i shall be left to fight the tyrant alone the compact would be left to him to carry out cam would never resist tyranny to the death he thought grimly watching her face sad sulky yielding and as sometimes happens when a cloud falls on a green hillside and gravity descends and there among all the surrounding hills is gloom and sorrow and it seems as if the hills themselves must ponder the fate of the clouded the darkened either in pity or maliciously rejoicing in her dismay so cam now felt herself overcast as she sat there among calm resolute people and wondered how to answer her father about the puppy how to resist his entreaty forgive me care for me while james the lawgiver with the tablets of eternal wisdom laid open on his knee his hand on the tiller had become symbolical to her said resist him fight him he said so rightly justly for they must fight tyranny to the death she thought of all human qualities she reverenced justice most her brother was most godlike her father most suppliant and to which did she yield she thought sitting between them gazing at the shore whose points were all unknown to her and thinking how the lawn and the terrace and the house were smoothed away now and peace dwelt there jasper she said sullenly he'd look after the puppy and what was she going to call him her father persisted he had had a dog when he was a little boy called frisk she'll give way james thought as he watched a look come upon her face a look he remembered they look down he thought at their knitting or something then suddenly they look up there was a flash of blue he remembered and then somebody sitting with him laughed surrendered and he was very angry it must have been his mother he thought sitting on a low chair with his father standing over her he began to search among the infinite series of impressions which time had laid down leaf upon leaf fold upon fold softly incessantly upon his brain among scents sounds voices harsh hollow sweet and lights passing and brooms tapping and the wash and hush of the sea how a man had marched up and down and stopped dead upright over them meanwhile he noticed cam dabbled her fingers in the water and stared at the shore and said nothing no she won't give way he thought she's different he thought well if cam would not answer him he would not bother her mr ramsay decided feeling in his pocket for a book but she would answer him she wished passionately to move some obstacle that lay upon her tongue and to say oh yes frisk i'll call him frisk 
she wanted even to say, was that the dog that found its way over the moor alone. But try as she might, she could think of nothing to say like that, fierce and loyal to the compact, yet passing on to her father, unsuspected by James, a private token of the love she felt for him. For, she thought, dabbling her hand, and now McAllister's boy had caught a mackerel, and it lay kicking on the floor with blood on its gills. For she thought, looking at James who kept his eyes dispassionately on the sail, or glanced now and then for a second at the horizon, you're not exposed to it, to this pressure and division of feeling, this extraordinary temptation. Her father was feeling in his pockets. In another second he would have found his book. For no one attracted her more. His hands were beautiful, and his feet, and his voice, and his words, and his haste, and his temper, and his oddity, and his passion, and his saying straight out before every one, We perish, each alone, and his remoteness. He had opened his book. But what remained intolerable, she thought, sitting upright, and watching McAllister's boy tug the hook out of the gills of another fish, was that crass blindness and tyranny of his, which had poisoned her childhood and raised bitter storms, so that even now she woke in the night trembling with rage, and remembered some command of his, some insolence. Do this, do that, his dominance, his submit to me. So she said nothing, but looked doggedly and sadly at the shore, wrapped in its mantle of peace, as if the people there had fallen asleep, she thought, were free like smoke, were free to come and go like ghosts. They have no suffering there, she thought. End of section 13「Section fourteen of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf Chapter six Yes, that is their boat, Lily Briscoe decided, standing on the edge of the lawn. It was the boat with greyish brown sails, which she saw now flatten itself upon the water and shoot off across the bay. There he sits, she thought and the children are quite silent still. And she could not reach him either. The sympathy she had not given him weighed her down. It made it difficult for her to paint. She had always found him difficult. She had never been able to praise him to his face, she remembered, and that reduced their relationship to something neutral, without that element of sex in it which made his manner to Minter so gallant, almost gay. He would pick a flower for her, lend her his books. But could he believe that Minta read them? She dragged them about the garden, sticking in leaves to mark the place. "'Do you remember, Mr. Carmichael?' she was inclined to ask, looking at the old man. But he had pulled his hat half over his forehead. He was asleep, or he was dreaming, or he was lying there catching words, she supposed. "'Do you remember?' she felt inclined to ask him as she passed him, thinking again of Mrs. Ramsay on the beach, the cask bobbing up and down, and the pages flying. Why, after all these years, had that survived, ringed round, lit up, visible to the last detail, with all before it blank, and all after it blank, 
for miles and miles. "'Is it a boat? Is it a cork?' she would say, Lily repeated, turning back, reluctantly again, to her canvas. Heaven be praised for it, the problem of space remained, she thought, taking up her brush again. It glared at her. The whole mass of the picture was poised upon that weight. Beautiful and bright it should be on the surface, feathery and evanescent, one colour melting into another like the colours on a butterfly's wing, but beneath the fabric must be clamped together with bolts of iron. It was to be a thing you could ruffle with your breath, and a thing you could not dislodge with a team of horses. And she began to lay on a red, a grey, and she began to model her way into the hollow there. At the same time she seemed to be sitting beside Mrs. Ramsay on the beach. "'Is it a boat? Is it a cask?' Mrs. Ramsay said, and she began hunting round for her spectacles. And she sat, having found them, silent, looking out to sea. And Lily, painting steadily, felt as if a door had opened, and one went in and stood gazing silently about in a high, cathedral-like place, very dark, very solemn. Shouts came from a world far away. Steamers vanished in stalks of smoke on the horizon. Charles threw stones and sent them skipping. Mrs. Ramsay sat silent. She was glad, Lily thought, to rest in silence, uncommunicative, to rest in the extreme obscurity of human relationships. Who knows what we are, what we feel? Who knows, even at the moment of intimacy, this is knowledge? Aren't things spoilt, then? Mrs. Ramsay may have asked. It seemed to have happened so often, this silence by her side, by saying them. Aren't we more expressive thus? The moment, at least, seemed extraordinarily fertile. She rammed a little hole in the sand and covered it up, by way of burying in it the perfection of the moment. It was like a drop of silver, in which one dipped and illumined the darkness of the past. Lily stepped back to get her canvas, so, into perspective. It was an odd road to be walking, this of painting. Out and out one went, further, until at last one seemed to be on a narrow plank, perfectly alone over the sea. And, as she dipped into the blue paint, she dipped too into the past there. Now Mrs. Ramsay got up, she remembered. It was time to go back to the house, time for luncheon. And they all walked up from the beach together, she walking behind with William Banks, and there was Minter in front of them with a hole in her stocking. How that little round hole of pink heel seemed to flaunt itself before them! How William Banks deplored it, without, so far as she could remember, saying anything about it! It meant to him the annihilation of womanhood, and dirt and disorder, and servants leaving and beds not made at midday, all the things he most abhorred. He had a way of shuddering and spreading his fingers out, as if to cover an unsightly object which he did now, holding his hand in front of him. And Minta walked on ahead, and presumably Paul met her, and she went off with Paul in the garden. The Rayleighs, thought Lily Briscoe, squeezing her tube of green paint. 
she collected her impressions of the Rayleighs. Their lives appeared to her in a series of scenes, one on the staircase at dawn. Paul had come in and gone to bed early. Minta was late. There was Minta, wreathed, tinted, garish on the stairs about three o'clock in the morning. Paul came out in his pyjamas carrying a poker in case of burglars. Minta was eating a sandwich. Standing halfway up by a window, in the cadaverous early morning light, and the carpet had a hole in it. But what did they say? Lily asked herself, as if by looking she could hear them. Minta went on eating her sandwich, annoyingly, while he spoke something violent, abusing her, in a mutter so as not to wake the children, the two little boys. He was withered, drawn, she flamboyant, careless. For things had worked loose after the first year or so, the marriage had turned out rather badly. And this, Lily thought, taking the green paint on her brush, this making up scenes about them, is what we call knowing people, thinking of them, being fond of them. Not a word of it was true, she had made it up, but it was what she knew them by all the same. She went on tunnelling her way into her picture, into the past. Another time, Paul said he, played chess in coffee-houses. She had built up a whole structure of imagination on that saying, too. She remembered how, as he said it, she thought how he rang up the servant, and she said, "'Mrs. Rayleigh's out, sir,' and he decided that he would not come home either. She saw him sitting in the corner of some lugubrious place, where the smoke attached itself to the red plush seats, and the waitresses got to know you, and he played chess with a little man who was in the tea-trade and lived at Surbiton, but that was all Paul knew about him. And then Minta was out when he came home, and then there was that scene on the stairs, when he got the poker in case of burglars, no doubt to frighten her, too, and spoke so bitterly saying she had ruined his life. At any rate, when she went down to see them at a cottage near Rickmansworth, things were horribly strained. Paul took her down the garden to look at the Belgian hares which she bred, and Minta followed them, singing, and put her bare arm on his shoulder, lest he should tell her anything. Minta was bored by hares, Lily thought, but Minta never gave herself away. She never said things like that about playing chess in coffee-shops. She was far too conscious, far too wary. But to go on with their story. They had got through the dangerous stage by now. She had been staying with them last summer sometime, and the car broke down, and Minta had to hand him his tools. He sat on the road mending the car, and it was the way she gave him the tools—business-like, straightforward, friendly that proved it was all right now. They were in love no longer. No, he had taken up with another woman, a serious woman, with her hair in a plait and a case in her hand. Minta had described her gratefully, almost admiringly, who went to meetings and shared Paul's views—they had got more and more pronounced—about the taxation of land values and a capital levy. Far from breaking up the marriage, that alliance had righted it. They were excellent friends, obviously, as he sat on the road and she handed him his tools. So that was the story of the Rayleighs, Lily thought. 
she imagined herself telling it to Mrs. Ramsay, who would be full of curiosity to know what had become of the Rayleighs. She would feel a little triumphant, telling Mrs. Ramsay that the marriage had not been a success. But the dead, thought Lily, encountering some obstacle in her design which made her pause and ponder, stepping back a foot or so. Oh, the dead, she murmured. One pitied them, one brushed them aside, one had even a little contempt for them. They are at our mercy. Mrs. Ramsay has faded and gone, she thought. We can override her wishes, improve away her limited, old-fashioned ideas. She recedes further and further from us. Mockingly, she seemed to see her there at the end of the corridor of years, saying, of all incongruous things, "'Marry! Marry!' sitting very upright early in the morning with the birds beginning to cheep in the garden outside. And one would have to say to her, "'It has all gone against your wishes. They're happy like that. I'm happy like this. Life has changed completely.' At that all her being, even her beauty, became for a moment dusty and out of date. For a moment Lily, standing there, with the sun hot on her back, summing up the Rayleighs, triumphed over Mrs. Ramsay, who would never know how Paul went to coffee-houses and had a mistress, how he sat on the ground and Minter handed him his tools, how she stood here painting, had never married, not even William Banks. Mrs. Ramsay had planned it. Perhaps, had she lived, she would have compelled it. Already that summer he was the kindest of men. He was the first scientist of his age, my husband says. He was also, Poor William! It makes me so unhappy when I go to see him, to find nothing nice in his house, no one to arrange the flowers. So they were sent for walks together, and she was told, with that faint touch of irony that made Mrs. Ramsay slip through one's fingers, that she had a scientific mind, she liked flowers, she was so exact. What was this mania of hers for marriage? Lily wondered, stepping to and fro from her easel. Suddenly, as suddenly as a star slides in the sky, a reddish light seemed to burn in her mind, covering Paul Rayleigh, issuing from him. It rose like a fire sent up in token of some celebration by savages on a distant beach. She heard the roar and the crackle. The whole sea for miles round ran red and gold. Some whiny smell mixed with it and intoxicated her, for she felt again her own headlong desire to throw herself off the cliff and be drowned looking for a pearl brooch on a beach. And the roar and the crackle repelled her with fear and disgust, as if while she saw its splendour and power, she saw too how it fed on the treasure of the house, greedily, disgustingly, and she loathed it. But for a sight, for a glory it surpassed everything in her experience, and burnt year after year like a signal-fire on a desert island at the edge of the sea, and one had only to say, in love, and instantly, as happened now, uprose Paul's fire again. And it sank, and she said to herself, laughing, the Rayleighs, how Paul went to coffee-houses and played chess. She had only escaped by the skin of her teeth, though she thought. She had been looking at the tablecloth, 
and it had flashed upon her that she would move the tree to the middle, and need never marry anybody, and she had felt an enormous exultation. She had felt, now she could stand up to Mrs. Ramsay, a tribute to the astonishing power that Mrs. Ramsay had over one. Do this, she said, and one did it. Even her shadow at the window with James was full of authority. She remembered how William Banks had been shocked by her neglect of the significance of mother and son. Did she not admire their beauty? he said. But William, she remembered, had listened to her with his wise child's eyes, when she explained how it was not irreverence, how a light there needed a shadow there, and so on. She did not intend to disparage a subject which, they agreed, Raphael had treated divinely. She was not cynical. Quite the contrary. Thanks to his scientific mind he understood, a proof of disinterested intelligence which had pleased her and comforted her enormously. One could talk of painting then seriously to a man. Indeed, his friendship had been one of the pleasures of her life. She loved William Banks. They went to Hampton Court, and he always left her, like the perfect gentleman he was, plenty of time to wash her hands while he strolled by the river. That was typical of their relationship. Many things were left unsaid. Then they strolled through the courtyards, and admired, summer after summer, the proportions and the flowers, and he would tell her things, about perspective, about architecture, as they walked, and he would stop to look at a tree, or the view over the lake, and admire a child. It was his great grief, he had no daughter, in the vague, aloof way that was natural to a man who spent so much time in laboratories, that the world, when he came out, seemed to dazzle him, so that he walked slowly, lifted his hand to screen his eyes, and paused, with his head thrown back, merely to breathe the air. Then he would tell her how his housekeeper was on her holiday, he must buy a new carpet for the staircase. Perhaps she would go with him to buy a new carpet for the staircase. And once something led him to talk about the Ramses, and he had said how when he first saw her she had been wearing a grey hat, she was not more than nineteen or twenty, she was astonishingly beautiful. There he stood, looking down the avenue at Hampton Court, as if he could see her there among the fountains. She looked now at the drawing-room step. She saw, through William's eyes, the shape of a woman, peaceful and silent, with downcast eyes. She sat musing, pondering. She was in grey that day, Lily thought. Her eyes were bent. She would never lift them. Yes, thought Lily, looking intently. I must have seen her look like that, but not in grey, nor so still, nor so young, nor so peaceful. The figure came readily enough. She was astonishingly beautiful, as William said. But beauty was not everything. Beauty had this penalty. It came too readily, came too completely. It stilled life, froze it. One forgot the little agitations, the flush, the pallor, some queer distortion, some light or shadow, which made the face unrecognisable for a moment, and yet added a quality one saw for ever after. It was simpler to smooth that all out under the cover of beauty. But what was the look she had, 
Lily wondered, when she clapped her deer-stalker's hat on her head, or ran across the grass, or scolded Kennedy the gardener. Who could tell her? Who could help her? Against her will she had come to the surface, and found herself half out of the picture, looking, little dazedly, as if at unreal things, at Mr. Carmichael. He lay on his chair with his hands clasped above his paunch, not reading or sleeping, but basking like a creature gorged with existence. His book had fallen onto the grass. She wanted to go straight up to him and say, "'Mr. Carmichael!' Then he would look up benevolently as always, from his smoky vague green eyes. But one only woke people if one knew what one wanted to say to them. And she wanted to say not one thing, but everything. Little words that broke up the thought and dismembered it said nothing. About life, about death, about Mrs. Ramsay. No, she thought, one could say nothing to nobody. The urgency of the moment always missed its mark. Words fluttered sideways and struck the object inches too low. Then one gave it up, then the idea sunk back again. Then one became like most middle-aged people, cautious, furtive, with wrinkles between the eyes and a look of perpetual apprehension. For how could one express in words these emotions of the body, express that emptiness there? She was looking at the drawing-room steps. They looked extraordinarily empty. It was one's body feeling, not one's mind. The physical sensations that went with the bare look of the steps had become suddenly extremely unpleasant. To want and not to have sent all up her body a hardness, a hollowness, a strain. And then to want and not to have, to want and want, how that wrung the heart, and wrung it again and again. Oh, Mrs. Ramsay, she called out silently, to that essence which sat by the boat, that abstract one made of her, that woman in grey, as if to abuse her for having gone, and then having gone, come back again. It had seemed so safe, thinking of her. Ghost, air, nothingness, a thing you could play with easily and safely at any time of day or night. She had been that, and then suddenly she put her hand out and wrung the heart thus. Suddenly the empty drawing-room steps, the frill of the chair inside, the puppy tumbling on the terrace, the whole wave and whisper of the garden, became like curves and arabesques flourishing round a centre of complete emptiness. "'What does it mean? How do you explain it all?' she wanted to say, turning to Mr. Carmichael again. For the whole world seemed to have dissolved in this early morning hour into a pool of thought, a deep basin of reality, and one could almost fancy that had Mr. Carmichael spoken, for instance, a little tear would have rent the surface pool. And then? Something would emerge. A hand would be shoved up, a blade would be flashed. It was nonsense, of course. A curious notion came to her that he did, after all, hear the things she could not say. He was an inscrutable old man, with the yellow stain on his beard, and his poetry and his puzzles, sailing serenely through a world which satisfied all his wants, so that she thought he only had to put down his hand where he lay on the lawn to fish up anything he wanted. 
she looked at her picture. That would have been his answer, presumably, how you and I and she pass and vanish, nothing stays, all changes, but not words, not paint. Yet it would be hung in the attics, she thought, it would be rolled up and flung under a sofa. Yet even so, even of a picture like that, it was true. One might say, even of this scrawl, not of that actual picture, perhaps, but of what it attempted, that it remained for ever, she was going to say, or, for the words spoken sounded even to herself too boastful, to hint wordlessly. When, looking at the picture, she was surprised to find that she could not see it. Her eyes were full of a hot liquid—she did not think of tears at first—which, without disturbing the firmness of her lips, made the air thick, rolled down her cheeks. She had perfect control of herself—oh, yes, in every other way. Was she crying, then, for Mrs. Ramsay, without being aware of any unhappiness? She addressed old Mr. Carmichael again. What was it, then? What did it mean? Could things thrust their hands up and grip one? Could the blade cut, the fist grasp? Was there no safety, no learning by heart of the ways of the world? No guide, no shelter, but all was miracle and leaping from the pinnacle of a tower into the air. Could it be, even for elderly people, that this was life, startling, unexpected, unknown. For one moment she felt that if they both got up, here, now, on the lawn, and demanded an explanation, why was it so short, why was it so inexplicable, said it with violence, as two fully equipped human beings from which nothing should be hid might speak, then beauty would roll itself up, the space would fill, those empty flourishes would form into shape. If they shouted loud enough, Mrs. Ramsay would return. "'Mrs. Ramsay,' she said aloud, "'Mrs. Ramsay!' The tears ran down her face. CHAPTER Seven. McAllister's boy took one of the fish and cut a square out of its side to bait his hook with. The mutilated body—it was alive still was thrown back into the sea. End of section 14、section、15 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Mrs. Ramsay! Lily cried. Mrs. Ramsay! But nothing happened. The pain increased that anguish could reduce one to such a pitch of imbecility, she thought. Anyhow, the old man had not heard her. He remained benignant, calm, if one chose to think it, sublime. Heaven be praised, no one had heard her cry that ignominious cry, Stop, pain, stop! She had not obviously taken leave of her senses. No one had seen her step off her strip of board into the waters of annihilation. She remained a skimpy old maid, holding a paintbrush. And now, slowly, the pain of the want, and the bitter anger—to be called back, 
just as she thought she would never feel sorrow for Mrs. Ramsay again. Had she missed her among the coffee-cups at breakfast? Not in the least. Lessened, and of their anguish left, as an antidote, a relief that was balm in itself, and also, but more mysteriously, a sense of someone there, of Mrs. Ramsay, relieved for a moment of the weight that the world had put on her, staying lightly by her side, and then, for this was Mrs. Ramsay in all her beauty, raising to her forehead a wreath of white flowers with which she went. Lily squeezed her tubes again. She attacked that problem of the hedge. It was strange how clearly she saw her, stepping with her usual quickness across fields, among whose folds, purplish and soft, among whose flowers, hyacinths or lilies, she vanished. It was some trick of the painter's eye. For days after she had heard of her death she had seen her thus, putting her wreath to her forehead and going unquestioningly with her companion a shade across the fields. The sight, the phrase, had its power to console. Wherever she happened to be—painting, here, in the country or in London—the vision would come to her, and her eyes, half-closing, sought something to base her vision on. She looked down the railway carriage, the omnibus, took a line from shoulder or cheek, looked at the windows opposite, at Piccadilly, lamp-strung in the evening. All had been part of the fields of death. But always something—it might be a face, a voice, a paper-boy crying, Standard! News! thrust through, snubbed her, waked her, required and got in the end an effort of attention, so that the vision must be perpetually remade. Now again, moved as she was by some instinctive need of distance and blue, she looked at the bay beneath her, making hillocks of the blue bars of the waves, and stony fields of the purpler spaces. Again she was roused as usual by something incongruous. There was a brown spot in the middle of the bay. It was a boat. Yes, she realised that after a second. But whose boat? Mr. Ramsay's boat, she replied. Mr. Ramsay, the man who had marched past her, with his hand raised, aloof at the head of a procession, in his beautiful boots, asking her for sympathy, which she had refused. The boat was now half-way across the bay. So fine was the morning, except for a streak of wind here and there, that the sea and sky looked all one fabric, as if sails were stuck high up in the sky, or the clouds had dropped down into the sea. A steamer far out at sea had drawn in the air a great scroll of smoke, which stayed there curving and circling decoratively, as if the air were a fine gauze which held things and kept them softly in its mesh, only gently swaying them this way and that. And, as happens sometimes when the weather is very fine, the cliffs looked as if they were conscious of the ships, and the ships looked as if they were conscious of the cliffs, as if they signalled to each other some message of their own. For sometimes, quite close to the shore, the lighthouse looked this morning, in the haze, an enormous distance away. "'Where are they now?' Lily thought, looking out to sea. 
Where was he, that very old man who had gone past her silently, holding a brown paper parcel under his arm? The boat was in the middle of the bay. CHAPTER Nine. They don't feel a thing there, Cam thought, looking at the shore, which, rising and falling, became steadily more distant and more peaceful. Her hand cut a trail in the sea, as her mind made the green swirls and streaks into patterns, and, numbed and shrouded, wandered in imagination in that underworld of waters where the pearls stuck in clusters to white sprays. A change came over one's entire mind, and one's body shone half-transparent, enveloped in a green cloak. Then the eddy slackened round her hand. The rush of the water ceased, the world became full of little creaking and squeaking sounds. One heard the waves breaking and flapping against the side of the boat, as if they were anchored in harbour. Everything became very close to one. For the sail, upon which James had his eyes fixed until it had become to him like a person whom he knew, sagged entirely. There they came to a stop, flapping about waiting for a breeze, in the hot sun, miles from shore, miles from the lighthouse. Everything in the whole world seemed to stand still. The lighthouse became immovable, and the line of the distant shore became fixed. The sun grew hotter, and everybody seemed to come very close together and to feel each other's presence, which they had almost forgotten. McAllister's fishing line went plumb down into the sea. But Mr. Ramsay went on reading with his legs curled under him. He was reading a little shiny book with covers mottled like a plover's egg. Now and again, as they hung about in that horrid calm, he turned a page and James felt that each page was turned with a peculiar gesture aimed at him, now assertively, now commandingly, now with the intention of making people pity him, and all the time, as his father read and turned one after another of those little pages, James kept dreading the moment when he would look up and speak sharply to him about something or other. "'Why were they lagging about here?' he would demand, or something quite unreasonable like that. And if he does, James thought, then I shall take a knife and strike him to the heart. He had always kept this old symbol of taking a knife and striking his father to the heart. Only now, as he grew older, and sat staring at his father in an impotent rage, it was not him, that old man reading, whom he wanted to kill, but it was the thing that descended on him, without his knowing it, perhaps that fierce, sudden, black-winged harpy, with its talons and its beak all cold and hard, that struck and struck at you. He could feel the beak on his bare legs, where it had struck when he was a child, and then made off, and there he was again, an old man, very sad, reading his book. That he would kill, that he would strike to the heart. Whatever he did, and he might do anything, he felt, looking at the lighthouse and the distant shore. Whether he was in a business, in a bank, a barrister, a man at the head of some enterprise, that he would fight, that he would track down and stamp out. Tyranny, despotism, he called it, 
making people do what they did not want to do, cutting off their right to speak. How could any of them say, but I won't, when he said, come to the lighthouse, do this, fetch me that? The black wings spread, and the hard beak tore. And then, next moment, there he sat reading his book, and he might look up, one never knew, quite reasonably. He might talk to them callisters. He might be pressing a sovereign into some frozen old woman's hand in the street, James thought, and he might be shouting out at some fisherman's sports, he might be waving his arms in the air with excitement. Or he might sit at the head of the table, dead silent, from one end of dinner to the other. Yes, thought James, while the boat slapped and dawdled there in the hot sun. There was a waste of snow and rock, very lonely and austere, and there he had come to feel, quite often lately, when his father said something or did something which surprised the others. There were two pairs of footprints only, his own and his father's. They alone knew each other. What, then, was this terror, this hatred? Turning back among the many leaves which the past had folded in him, peering into the heart of that forest where light and shade so chequer each other, that all shape is distorted, and one blunders, now with the sun in one's eyes, now with a dark shadow, he sought an image to cool and detach, and round off his feeling in a concrete shape. Suppose, then, that as a child, sitting helpless in a perambulator, or on someone's knee, he had seen a wagon crush ignorantly and innocently someone's foot. Suppose he had seen the foot first, in the grass, smooth and whole, then the wheel, and the same foot, purple, crushed. But the wheel was innocent. So now, when his father came striding down the passage, knocking them up early in the morning to go to the lighthouse, down it came over his foot, over Cam's foot, over anybody's foot. One sat and watched it. But whose foot was he thinking of, and in what garden did all this happen? For one had settings for these scenes, trees that grew there, flowers, a certain light, a few figures. Everything tended to set itself in a garden where there was none of this gloom, none of this throwing of hands about, people spoke in an ordinary tone of voice. They went in and out all day long. There was an old woman gossiping in the kitchen, and the blinds were sucked in and out by the breeze. All was blowing, all was growing, and over all those plates and bowls and tall brandishing red and yellow flowers a very thin yellow veil would be drawn, like a vine-leaf at night. Things became stiller and darker at night. But the leaf-like veil was so fine that lights lifted it, voices crinkled it, he could see through it a figure stooping, here, coming close, going away, some dress rustling, some chain tinkling. It was in this world that the wheel went over the person's foot. Something, he remembered, stayed flourished up in the air, something arid and sharp descended even there, like a blade, a scimitar, smiting through the leaves and flowers, even of that happy world, and making it shrivel and fall. "'It will rain,' he remembered his father saying, 
you won't be able to go to the lighthouse." The lighthouse was then a silvery, misty-looking tower with a yellow eye that opened suddenly and softly in the evening. Now—James looked at the lighthouse. He could see the whitewashed rocks, the tower, stark and straight. He could see that it was barred with black and white. He could see windows in it. He could even see washing spread on the rocks to dry. So that was the lighthouse, was it? No, the other was also the lighthouse. For nothing was simply one thing. The other lighthouse was true, too. It was sometimes hardly to be seen across the bay. In the evening one looked up and saw the eye opening and shutting, and the light seemed to reach them in that airy sunny garden where they sat. But he pulled himself up. Whenever he said, they, or, a person, and then began hearing the rustle of someone coming, the tinkle of someone going, he became extremely sensitive to the presence of whoever might be in the room. It was his father now. The strain was acute. For in one moment, if there was no breeze, his father would slap the covers of his book together, and say, "'What's happening now? What are we dawdling about for here, eh?' As, once before, he had brought his blade down among them on the terrace, and she had gone stiff all over, and if there had been an axe handy, a knife, or anything with a sharp point, he would have seized it and struck his father through the heart. She had gone stiff all over, and then, her arm slackening, so that he felt she listened to him no longer, she had risen somehow and gone away and left him there, impotent, ridiculous, sitting on the floor grasping a pair of scissors. Not a breath of wind blew. The water chuckled and gurgled in the bottom of the boat, where three or four mackerel beat their tails up and down in a pool of water not deep enough to cover them. At any moment Mr. Ramsay—he scarcely dared to look at him—might rouse himself, shut his book, and say something sharp. But for the moment he was reading, so that James stealthily, as if he were stealing downstairs on bare feet, afraid of waking a watchdog by a creaking board, went on thinking what was she like, where did she go that day? He began following her from room to room and at last they came to a room where, in a blue light, as if the reflection came from many china dishes, she talked to somebody. He listened to her talking. She talked to a servant, saying simply whatever came into her head. She alone spoke the truth. To her alone could he speak it. That was the source of her everlasting attraction for him, perhaps. She was a person to whom one could say what came into one's head. But all the time he thought of her, he was conscious of his father following his thought, surveying it, making it shiver and falter. At last he ceased to think. There he sat with his hand on the tiller in the sun, staring at the lighthouse, powerless to move, powerless to flick off these grains of misery which settled on his mind one after another. A rope seemed to bind him there, and his father had knotted it and he could only escape by taking a knife and plunging it. But at that moment the sail swung slowly round, filled slowly out, the boat seemed to shake herself, 
and then to move off, half-conscious in her sleep, and then she woke and shot through the waves. The relief was extraordinary. They all seemed to fall away from each other again, and to be at their ease, and the fishing-lines slanted taut across the side of the boat. But his father did not rouse himself. He only raised his right hand mysteriously high in the air, and let it fall upon his knee again, as if he were conducting some secret symphony. CHAPTER Ten. The sea without a stain on it, thought Lily Briscoe, still standing and looking out over the bay. The sea stretched like silk across the bay. Distance had an extraordinary power. They had been swallowed up in it, she felt, they were gone for ever, they had become part of the nature of things. It was so calm, it was so quiet. The steamer itself had vanished, but the great scroll of smoke still hung in the air, and drooped like a flag mournfully in valediction. CHAPTER Eleven. It was like that, then, the island, thought Cam, once more drawing her fingers through the waves. She had never seen it from out at sea before. It lay like that on the sea, did it, with a dent in the middle and two sharp crags, and the sea swept in there, and spread away for miles and miles on either side of the island. It was very small, shaped something like a leaf stood on end. So we took a little boat, she thought, beginning to tell herself a story of adventure about escaping from a sinking ship. But, with the sea streaming through her fingers, a spray of seaweed vanishing behind them, she did not want to tell herself seriously a story. It was the sense of adventure and escape that she wanted. For she was thinking, as the boat sailed on, how her father's anger about the points of the compass, James's obstinacy about the compact, and her own anguish—all had slipped, all had passed, all had streamed away. What then came next? Where were they going? From her hand, ice-cold, held deep in the sea, there spurted up a fountain of joy at the change, at the escape, at the adventure, that she should be alive, that she should be there. And the drops falling from this sudden and unthinking fountain of joy fell here and there on the dark, the slumberous shapes in her mind, shapes of a world not realised but turning in their darkness, catching here and there a spark of light. Greece, Rome, Constantinople. Small as it was, and shaped something like a leaf stood on its end with the gold-sprinkled waters flowing in and about it, it had, she supposed, a place in the universe, even that little island. The old gentleman in the study, she thought, could have told her. Sometimes she strayed in from the garden purposely to catch them at it. There they were. It might be Mr. Carmichael or Mr. Banks who was sitting with her father, sitting opposite each other in their low armchairs. They were crackling in front of them the pages of the Times, when she came in from the garden, all in a muddle, about something someone had said about Christ or hearing that a mammoth had been dug up in a London street, or wondering what Napoleon was like. Then they took all this with their clean hands. They wore grey-coloured clothes, they smelt of heather. 
and they brushed the scraps together, turning the paper, crossing their knees, and said something now and then very brief. Just to please herself she would take a book from the shelf and stand there, watching her father write, so equally, so neatly from one side of the page to another, with a little cough now and then, or something said briefly to the other old gentleman opposite. And she thought, standing there with her book open, one could let whatever one thought expand here like a leaf in water, and if it did well here, among the old gentlemen smoking and the times crackling, then it was right. And watching her father as he wrote in his study, she thought, now sitting in the boat, he was not vain, nor a tyrant, and did not wish to make you pity him. Indeed, if he saw she was there, reading a book, he would ask her, as gently as any one could, was there nothing he could give her? Lest this should be wrong, she looked at him reading the little book with the shiny cover mottled like a plover's egg. No, it was right. Look at him now, she wanted to say aloud to James. But James had his eye on the sail. He is a sarcastic brute, James would say. He brings the talk round to himself and his books, James would say. He is intolerably egotistical. Worst of all, he is a tyrant. But look, she said, looking at him, look at him now. She looked at him reading the little book with his legs curled, the little book whose yellowish pages she knew, without knowing what was written on them. It was small, it was closely printed. On the fly-leaf, she knew, he had written that he had spent fifteen francs on dinner, the wine had been so much, he had given so much to the waiter. All was added up neatly at the bottom of the page. But what might be written in the book which had rounded its edges off in his pocket she did not know. What he thought they none of them knew. But he was absorbed in it, so that when he looked up, as he did now for an instant, it was not to see anything, it was to pin down some thought more exactly. That done his mind flew back again, and he plunged into his reading. He read, she thought, as if he were guiding something, or wheedling a large flock of sheep, or pushing his way up and up a single narrow path. And sometimes he went fast and straight, and broke his way through the bramble, and sometimes it seemed a branch struck at him, a bramble blinded him, but he was not going to let himself be beaten by that. On he went, tossing over page after page. And she went on telling herself a story about escaping from a sinking ship, for she was safe while he sat there, safe as she felt herself when she crept in from the garden and took a book down, and the old gentleman, lowering the paper suddenly, said something very brief over the top of it about the character of Napoleon. She gazed back over the sea, at the Ireland, but the leaf was losing its sharpness. It was very small, it was very distant. The sea was more important now than the shore. Waves were all around them, tossing and sinking, with a log wallowing down one wave, a gull riding on another. About here, she thought, dabbling her fingers in the water, a ship had sunk, and she murmured, dreamily half asleep, how we perished, each alone.
End of section 15. Section 16 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. So much depends, then, thought Lily Briscoe, looking at the sea which had scarcely a stain on it, which was so soft that the sails and the clouds seemed set in its blue. So much depends, she thought, upon distance, whether people are near us or far from us. For her feeling for Mr. Ramsay changed as he sailed further and further across the bay. It seemed to be elongated stretched out, he seemed to become more and more remote. He and his children seemed to be swallowed up in that blue, that distance. But here on the lawn, close at hand, Mr. Carmichael suddenly grunted. She laughed. He clawed his book up from the grass. He settled into his chair again, puffing and blowing like some sea-monster. That was different altogether, because he was so near. And now again all was quiet. They must be out of bed by this time, she supposed, looking at the house, but nothing appeared there. But then, she remembered, they had always made off directly a meal was over, on business of their own. It was all in keeping with this silence, this emptiness, and the unreality of the early morning hour. It was a way things had sometimes, she thought, lingering for a moment and looking at the long glittering windows and the plume of blue smoke. They became illness, before habits had spun themselves across the surface, one felt that same unreality which was so startling, felt something emerge. Life was most vivid then, one could be at one's ease. Mercifully one need not say, very briskly, crossing the lawn to greet old Mrs. Beckwith, who would be coming out to find a corner to sit in. "'Oh, good morning, Mrs. Beckwith. What a lovely day! Are you going to be so bold as to sit in the sun? Jasper's hidden the chairs. Do let me find you one!' And all the rest of the usual chatter. One need not speak at all. One glided. One shook off one's sails. There was a good deal of movement in the bay, boats were starting off. Between things, beyond things. Empty it was not, but full to the brim. She seemed to be standing up to the lips in some substance, to move and float and sink in it. Yes, for these waters were unfathomably deep. Into them had spilled so many lives. The Ramses, the children's, and all sorts of waifs and strays of things besides. A washerwoman with her basket, a rook, a red-hot poker, the purples and grey-greens of flowers, some common feeling which held the whole together. It was some such feeling of completeness, perhaps, which, ten years ago, standing almost where she stood now, had made her say that she must be in love with the place. Love had a thousand shapes. There might be lovers whose gift it was to choose out the elements of things and place them together, and so, giving them a wholeness not theirs in life, make of some scene or meeting of people, all now gone and separate, one of those globed, compacted things over which thought lingers and love plays. 
her eyes rested on the brown speck of Mr. Ramsay's sailing-boat. They would be at the lighthouse by lunchtime, she supposed. But the wind had freshened, and, as the sky changed slightly, and the sea changed slightly, and the boats altered their positions, the view, which a moment before had seemed miraculously fixed, was now unsatisfactory. The wind had blown the trail of smoke about, there was something displeasing about the placing of the ships. The disproportion there seemed to upset some harmony in her own mind. She felt an obscure distress. It was confirmed when she turned to her picture. She had been wasting her morning. For whatever reason she could not achieve that razor-edge of balance between two opposite forces, Mr. Ramsay and the picture, which was necessary. There was perhaps something wrong with the design? Was it, she wondered, that the line of the wall wanted breaking? Was it that the mass of the trees was too heavy? She smiled ironically, for had she not thought, when she began, that she had solved her problem? What was the problem, then? She must try to get hold of something that evaded her. It evaded her when she thought of Mrs. Ramsay. It evaded her now when she thought of her picture. Phrases came, visions came, beautiful pictures, beautiful phrases. But what she wished to get hold of was that very jar on the nerves, the thing itself before it has been made anything. Get that and start afresh, get that and start afresh, she said desperately, pitching herself firmly again before her easel. It was a miserable machine, an inefficient machine, she thought, the human apparatus for painting or for feeling. It always broke down at the critical moment. Heroically one must force it on. She stared, frowning. There was the hedge, sure enough. But one got nothing by soliciting urgently. One got only a glare in the eye from looking at the line of the wall, or from thinking, she wore a grey hat, she was astonishingly beautiful. Let it come, she thought, if it will. For there are moments when one can neither think nor feel. And if one can neither think nor feel, she thought, where is one? Here on the grass, on the ground, she thought, sitting down and examining with her brush a little colony of plantains. For the lawn was very rough. Here, sitting on the world, she thought, for she could not shake herself free from the sense that everything this morning was happening for the first time, perhaps for the last time, as a traveller, even though he is half asleep, knows, looking out of the train window, that he must look now, for he will never see that town, or that mule-cart, or that woman at work in the fields, again. The lawn was the world. They were up here together, on this exalted station, she thought looking at old Mr. Carmichael, who seemed, though they had not said a word all this time, to share her thoughts. And she would never see him again, perhaps. He was growing old. Also, she remembered, smiling at the slipper that dangled from his foot, he was growing famous. People said that his poetry was so beautiful. They went and published things he had written forty years ago. There was a famous man now called Carmichael, she smiled, thinking how many shapes one person might wear, how he was that in the newspapers, 
but here the same as he had always been. He looked the same. Greyer, rather. Yes, he looked the same. But somebody had said, she recalled, that when he had heard of Andrew Ramsay's death—he was killed in a second by a shell, he should have been a great mathematician—Mr. Carmichael had lost all interest in life. What did it mean, that? she wondered. Had he marched through Trafalgar Square, grasping a big stick? Had he turned pages over and over, without reading them, sitting in his room in St. John's Wood alone? She did not know what he had done, when he heard that Andrew was killed, but she felt it in him all the same. They only mumbled at each other on staircases. They looked up at the sky and said, it will be fine or it won't be fine. But this was one way of knowing people, she thought, to know the outline, not the detail, to sit in one's garden and look at the slopes of a hill running purple down into the distant heather. She knew him in that way. She knew that he had changed somehow. She had never read a line of his poetry. She thought that she knew how it went, though, slowly and sonorously. It was seasoned and mellow. It was about the desert and the camel. It was about the palm-tree and the sunset. It was extremely impersonal. It said something about death. It said very little about love. There was an impersonality about him. He wanted very little of other people. Had he not always lurched rather awkwardly past the drawing-room window with some newspaper under his arm, trying to avoid Mrs. Ramsay, whom, for some reason, he did not much like? On that account, of course, she would always try to make him stop. He would bow to her. He would halt unwillingly and bow profoundly. Annoyed that he did not want anything of her, Mrs. Ramsay would ask him—Lily could hear her—wouldn't he like a coat, a rug, a newspaper? No, he wanted nothing. Here he bowed. There was some quality in her which he did not much like. It was perhaps her masterfulness, her positiveness, something matter-of-fact in her. She was so direct. A noise drew her attention to the drawing-room window, the squeak of a hinge. The light breeze was toying with the window. There must have been people who disliked her very much, Lily thought. Yes, she realised that the drawing-room step was empty, but it had no effect on her whatever. She did not want Mrs. Ramsay now. People who thought her too sure, too drastic. Also, her beauty offended people, probably. How monotonous, they would say, and the same always. They preferred another type, the dark, the vivacious. Then she was weak with her husband. She let him make those scenes. Then she was reserved. Nobody knew exactly what had happened to her. And, to go back to Mr. Carmichael and his dislike, one could not imagine Mrs. Ramsay standing painting, lying reading, a whole morning on the lawn. It was unthinkable. Without saying a word, the only token of her errand, a basket on her arm, she went off to the town, to the poor, to sit in some stuffy little bedroom. Often and often Lily had seen her go silently in the midst of some game, some discussion, 
with her basket on her arm, very upright. She had noted her return. She had thought, half laughing, she was so methodical with the teacups, half moved, her beauty took one's breath away, eyes that are closing in pain have looked on you, you have been with them there. And then Mrs. Ramsay would be annoyed because somebody was late, or the butter not fresh, or the teapot chipped. And all the time she was saying that the butter was not fresh, one would be thinking of Greek temples, and how beauty had been with them there in that stuffy little room. She never talked of it. She went punctually, directly. It was her instinct to go, an instinct like the swallows for the south, the artichokes for the sun, turning her infallibly to the human race, making her nest in its heart. And this, like all instincts, was a little distressing to people who did not share it. To Mr. Carmichael, perhaps, to herself, certainly. Some notion was in both of them about the ineffectiveness of action, the supremacy of thought. Her going was a reproach to them, gave a different twist to the world, so that they were led to protest, seeing their own prepossessions disappear, and clutch at them vanishing. Charles Tansley did that too. It was part of the reason why one disliked him. He upset the proportions of one's world. And what had happened to him, she wondered, idly stirring the plantains with her brush. He had got his fellowship. He had married. He lived at Golders Green. She had gone one day into a hall and heard him speaking during the war. He was denouncing something. He was condemning somebody. He was preaching brotherly love. And all she felt was, how could he love his kind, who did not know one picture from another, who had stood behind her smoking shag—fivepence an ounce, Miss Briscoe—and making it his business to tell her women can't write, women can't paint, not so much that he believed it, as that for some odd reason he wished it. There he was, lean and red and raucous, preaching love from a platform. There were ants crawling about among the plantains, which she disturbed with her brush—red, energetic, shiny ants, rather like Charles Tansley. She had looked at him ironically from her seat in the half-empty hall, pumping love into that chilly space, and suddenly there was the old cask or whatever it was, bobbing up and down among the waves, and Mrs. Ramsay looking for her spectacle-case among the pebbles. "'Oh, dear, what a nuisance! lost again. Don't bother, Mr. Tansley, I lose thousands every summer." At which he pressed his chin back against his collar, as if afraid to sanction such exaggeration, but could stand it in her whom he liked, and smiled very charmingly. He must have confided in her on one of those long expeditions, when people got separated and walked back alone. He was educating his little sister, Mrs. Ramsay had told her. It was immensely to his credit. Her own idea of him was grotesque, Lily knew well, stirring the plantains with her brush. Half one's notions of other people were, after all, grotesque. They served private purposes of one's own. He did for her instead of a whipping-boy. She found herself flagellating his lean flanks when she was out of temper. If she wanted to be serious about him, she had to help herself to Mrs. Ramsay's sayings, 
to look at him through her eyes. She raised a little mountain for the ants to climb over. She reduced them to a frenzy of indecision by this interference in their cosmogony. Some ran this way, others that. One wanted fifty pairs of eyes to see with, she reflected. Fifty pairs of eyes were not enough to get round that one woman with, she thought. Among them must be one that was stone-blind to her beauty. One wanted some most secret sense, fine as air, with which to steal through keyholes and surround her where she sat knitting, talking, sitting silent in the window alone, which took her to itself and treasured up like the air which held the smoke of the steamer, her thoughts, her imaginations, her desires. What did the hedge mean to her? What did the garden mean to her? What did it mean to her when a wave broke? Lily looked up, as she had seen Mrs. Ramsay look up. She too heard a wave falling on the beach. And then what stirred and trembled in her mind when the children cried, "'How's that? How's that?' cricketing. She would stop knitting for a second. She would look intent. Then she would lapse again, and suddenly Mr. Ramsay stopped dead in his pacing in front of her, and some curious shock passed through her, and seemed to rock her in profound agitation on its breast, when stopping there he stood over her and looked down at her. Lily could see him. He stretched out his hand and raised her from her chair. It seemed somehow as if he had done it before, as if he had once bent in the same way and raised her from a boat, which, lying a few inches off some island, had required that the ladies should thus be helped on shore by the gentlemen. An old-fashioned scene, that was, which required, very nearly, crinolines and peg-top trousers. Letting herself be helped by him, Mrs. Ramsay had thought, Lily supposed, the time has come now. Yes, she would say it now. Yes, she would marry him. And she stepped slowly, quietly on shore. Probably she said one word only, letting her hand rest still in his. I will marry you, she might have said, with her hand in his, but no more. Time after time the same thrill had passed between them. Obviously it had, Lily thought, smoothing away for her aunts. She was not inventing. She was only trying to smooth out something she had been given years ago folded up, something she had seen. For in the rough-and-tumble of daily life, with all those children about, all those visitors, one had constantly a sense of repetition, of one thing falling where another had fallen, and so setting up an echo, which chimed in the air and made it full of vibrations. But it would be a mistake, she thought, thinking how they walked off together, arm in arm, past the greenhouse, to simplify their relationship. It was no monotony of bliss, she with her impulses and quicknesses, he with his shudders and glooms. Oh, no! The bedroom door would slam violently early in the morning. He would start from the table in a temper. He would whiz his plate through the window. Then, all through the house, there would be a sense of doors slamming and blinds fluttering, as if a gusty wind were blowing, and people scudded about trying in a hasty way to fasten hatches and make things shipshape. 
she had met Paul Rayleigh like that one day on the stairs. They had laughed and laughed like a couple of children, all because Mr. Ramsay, finding an earwig in his milk at breakfast, had sent the whole thing flying through the air onto the terrace outside. "'An earwig,' Prue murmured, awestruck, "'in his milk!' Other people might find centipedes. But he had built round him such a fence of sanctity, and occupied the space with such a demeanour of majesty, that an earwig in his milk was a monster. But it tired Mrs. Ramsay, it cowed her a little, the plates whizzing and the doors slamming. And there would fall between them sometimes, long, rigid silences, when, in a state of mind which annoyed Lily in her, half plaintive, half resentful, she seemed unable to surmount the tempest calmly, or to laugh as they laughed, but in her weariness perhaps concealed something. She brooded and sat silent. After a time he would hang stealthily about the places where she was, roaming under the window where she sat writing letters or talking, for she would take care to be busy when he passed, and evade him and pretend not to see him. Then he would turn smooth as silk, affable, urbane, and try to win her so. Still she would hold off, and now she would assert for a brief season some of those prides and airs the due of her beauty, which she was generally utterly without, would turn her head, would look so over her shoulder, always with some minter, Paul or William Banks at her side. At length, standing outside the group, the very figure of a famished wolfhound, Lily got up off the grass and stood looking at the steps, at the window where she had seen him. He would say her name, once only, for all the world like a wolf barking in the snow. But still she held back. And he would say it once more, and this time something in the tone would rouse her, and she would go to him, leaving them all of a sudden, and they would walk off together among the pear-trees, the cabbages and the raspberry-beds. They would have it out together. But with what attitudes and with what words? Such a dignity was theirs in this relationship, that, turning away, she and Paul and Minter would hide their curiosity and their discomfort, and begin picking flowers, throwing balls, chattering, until it was time for dinner, and there they were, he at one end of the table, she at the other, as usual. "'Why don't some of you take up botany? With all those arms and legs, why doesn't one of you?' So they would talk as usual, laughing among the children. All would be as usual, save only for some quiver, as of a blade in the air, which came and went between them, as if the usual sight of the children, sitting round their soup-plates, had freshened itself in their eyes, after that hour among the pears and the cabbages. Especially, Lily thought, Mrs. Ramsay would glance at Prue. She sat in the middle between brothers and sisters, always occupied, it seemed, seeing that nothing went wrong so that she scarcely spoke herself. How Prue must have blamed herself for that earwig in the milk! How white she had gone when Mr. Ramsay threw his plate through the window! How she drooped under those long silences between them! Anyhow, her mother now would seem to be making it up to her, assuring her that everything was well, 
promising her that one of these days that same happiness would be hers. She had enjoyed it for less than a year, however. She had let the flowers fall from her basket, Lily thought, screwing up her eyes and standing back as if to look at her picture, which she was not touching, however, with all her faculties in a trance, frozen over superficially but moving underneath with extreme speed. She let her flowers fall from her basket, scattered and tumbled them on to the grass, and reluctantly and hesitatingly, but without question or complaint, had she not the faculty of obedience to perfection, went to. Down fields, across valleys, white, flower-strewn, that was how she would have painted it. The hills were austere. It was rocky, it was steep. The waves sounded hoarse on the stones beneath. They went, the three of them together, Mrs. Ramsay walking rather fast in front, as if she expected to meet someone round the corner. Suddenly the window at which she was looking was whitened by some light stuff behind it. At last, then, somebody had come into the drawing-room, somebody was sitting in the chair. For heaven's sake, she prayed, let them sit still there and not come floundering out to talk to her. Mercifully, whoever it was stayed still inside, had settled by some stroke of luck so as to throw an odd-shaped triangular shadow over the step. It altered the composition of the picture a little. It was interesting. It might be useful. Her mood was coming back to her. One must keep on looking, without for a second relaxing the intensity of emotion, the determination not to be put off, not to be bamboozled. One must hold the scene, so, in a vice, and let nothing come in and spoil it. One wanted, she thought, dipping her brush deliberately, to be on a level with ordinary experience, to feel simply, that's a chair, that's a table, and yet, at the same time, it's a miracle, it's an ecstasy. The problem might be solved after all. Ah, but what had happened? Some wave of white went over the window-pane. The air must have stirred some flounce in the room. Her heart leapt at her and seized her and tortured her. "'Mrs. Ramsay! Mrs. Ramsay!' she cried, feeling the old horror come back, to want and want and not to have. Could she inflict that still? And then, quietly, as if she refrained, that too became part of ordinary experience, was on a level with the chair, with the table. Mrs. Ramsay, it was part of her perfect goodness, sat there quite simply, in the chair, flicked her needles to and fro, knitted her reddish-brown stocking, cast her shadow on the step. There she sat. And as if she had something she must share, yet could hardly leave her easel, so full her mind was of what she was thinking, of what she was seeing, Lily went past Mr. Carmichael, holding her brush, to the edge of the lawn. Where was that boat now? And Mr. Ramsay? She wanted him. CHAPTER Thirteen. Mr. Ramsay had almost done reading. One hand hovered over the page, as if to be in readiness to turn it the very instant he had finished it. 
he sat there bareheaded, with the wind blowing his hair about, extraordinarily exposed to everything. He looked very old. He looked, James thought, getting his head now against the lighthouse, now against the waste of waters running away into the open, like some old stone lying on the sand. He looked as if he had become physically what was always at the back of both their minds, that loneliness which was for both of them the truth about things. He was reading very quickly now, as if he were eager to get to the end. Indeed, they were very close to the lighthouse now. There it loomed up, stark and straight, glaring white and black, and one could see the waves breaking in white splinters like smashed glass upon the rocks. One could see lines and creases in the rocks. One could see the windows clearly, a dab of white on one of them, and a little tuft of green on the rock. A man had come out and looked at them through a glass and gone in again. So it was like that, James thought, the lighthouse one had seen across the bay all these years. It was a stark tower on a bare rock. It satisfied him. It confirmed some obscure feeling of his about his own character. The old ladies, he thought, thinking of the garden at home, went dragging their chairs about on the lawn. Old Mrs. Beckwith, for example, was always saying how nice it was, and how sweet it was, and how they ought to be so proud, and they ought to be so happy. But as a matter of fact, James thought, looking at the lighthouse stood there on its rock, it's like that. He looked at his father reading fiercely with his legs curled tight. They shared that knowledge. We are driving before a gale, we must sink, he began saying to himself, half aloud, exactly as his father said it. Nobody seemed to have spoken for an age. Cam was tired of looking at the sea. Little bits of black cork had floated past. The fish were dead in the bottom of the boat. Still her father read, and James looked at him, and she looked at him, and they vowed that they would fight tyranny to the death, and he went on reading quite unconscious of what they thought. It was thus that he escaped, she thought. Yes, with his great forehead and his great nose, holding his little mottled book firmly in front of him, he escaped. You might try to lay hands on him, but then, like a bird, he spread his wings, he floated off to settle out of your reach somewhere, far away on some desolate stump. She gazed at the immense expanse of the sea. The island had grown so small that it scarcely looked like a leaf any longer. It looked like the top of a rock, which some wave bigger than the rest would cover. Yet in its frailty were all those paths, those terraces, those bedrooms, all those innumerable things. But as, just before sleep, things simplify themselves so that only one of all the myriad details has power to assert itself, so, she felt, looking drowsily at the island, all those paths and terraces and bedrooms were fading and disappearing, and nothing was left but a pale blue censer, swinging rhythmically this way and that across her mind. It was a hanging garden, it was a valley full of birds and flowers and antelopes. She was falling asleep. "'Come now,' said Mr. Ramsay, suddenly shutting his book. "'Come where?' 
to what extraordinary adventure? She woke with a start. To land somewhere, to climb somewhere? Where was he leading them? For after his immense silence the words startled them. But it was absurd. He was hungry, he said. It was time for lunch. Besides, look, he said, there's the lighthouse. We're almost there. He's doing very well, said McAllister, praising James. He's keeping her very steady. But his father never praised him, James thought grimly. Mr. Ramsay opened the parcel and shared out the sandwiches between them. Now he was happy, eating bread and cheese with these fishermen. He would have liked to live in a cottage and lounge about in the harbour spitting with the other old men, James thought, watching him slice his cheese into thin yellow sheets with his penknife. "'This is right. This is it,' Cam kept feeling, as she peeled her hard-boiled egg. Now she felt as she did in the study when the old men were reading the Times. Now I can go on thinking whatever I like, and I shan't fall over a precipice or be drowned, for there he is, keeping his eye on me," she thought. At the same time they were sailing so fast along by the rocks that it was very exciting. It seemed as if they were doing two things at once. They were eating their lunch here in the sun, and they were also making for safety in a great storm after a shipwreck. Would the water last? Would the provisions last? she asked herself, telling herself a story, but knowing at the same time what was the truth. They would soon be out of it, Mr. Ramsay was saying to old McAllister, but their children would see some strange things. McAllister said he was seventy-five last March. Mr. Ramsay was seventy-one. McAllister said he had never seen a doctor, he had never lost a tooth. And that's the way I'd like my children to live. Cam was sure that her father was thinking that, for he stopped her throwing a sandwich into the sea, and told her, as if he were thinking of the fishermen and how they lived, that if she did not want it she should put it back into the parcel. She should not waste it. He said it so wisely, as if he knew so well all the things that happened in the world, that she put it back at once, and then he gave her, from his own parcel, a gingerbread nut, as if he were a great Spanish gentleman, she thought, handing a flower to a lady at a window, so courteous his manner was. He was shabby and simple, eating bread and cheese, and yet he was leading them on a great expedition, where, for all she knew, they would be drowned. "'That was where she sunk,' said McAllister's boy suddenly. Three men were drowned where we are now,' the old man said. He had seen them clinging to the mast himself. And Mr. Ramsay, taking a look at the spot, was about—James and Cam were afraid—to burst out but I beneath a rougher sea. And if he did they could not bear it. They would shriek aloud. They could not endure another explosion of the passion that boiled in him. But to their surprise all he said was, Ah! as if he thought to himself. But why make a fuss about that? Naturally men are drowned in a storm, but it is a perfectly straightforward affair, and the depths of the sea he sprinkled the crumbs from his sandwich-paper over them, are only water after all. Then, having lighted his pipe, he took out his watch. He looked at it attentively. He made, perhaps, some mathematical calculation. At last he said triumphantly, "'Well done!' 
James had steered them like a born sailor. There, Cam thought, addressing herself silently to James, you've got it at last. For she knew that this was what James had been wanting, and she knew that now he had got it, he was so pleased that he would not look at her or his father or at any one. There he sat with his hand on the tiller, sitting bolt upright, looking rather sulky and frowning slightly. He was so pleased that he was not going to let anybody share a grain of his pleasure. His father had praised him. They must think that he was perfectly indifferent. But you've got it now, Cam thought. They had tacked, and they were sailing swiftly, buoyantly, on long rocking waves, which handed them on from one to another, with an extraordinary lilt and exhilaration beside the reef. On the left a row of rocks showed brown through the water which thinned and became greener, and on one, a higher rock, a wave incessantly broke and spurted a little column of drops which fell down in a shower. One could hear the slap of the water and the patter of falling drops, and a kind of hushing and hissing sound from the waves, rolling and gambling and slapping the rocks, as if they were wild creatures who were perfectly free, and tossed and tumbled and sported like this for ever. Now they could see two men on the lighthouse, watching them and making ready to meet them. Mr. Ramsay buttoned his coat and turned up his trousers. He took the large, badly packed, brown paper parcel which Nancy had got ready, and sat with it on his knee. Thus, in complete readiness to land, he sat looking back at the island. With his long-sighted eyes, perhaps he could see the dwindled, leaf-like shape, standing on end on a plate of gold, quite clearly. What could he see? Cam wondered. It was all a blur to her. What was he thinking now? she wondered. What was it he sought so fixedly, so intently, so silently? They watched him, both of them, sitting bareheaded with his parcel on his knee, staring and staring at the frail blue shape, which seemed like the vapour of something that had burnt itself away. "'What do you want?' they both wanted to ask. They both wanted to say, "'Ask us anything and we will give it you.' But he did not ask them anything. He sat and looked at the island, and he might be thinking, "'We perished, each alone,' or he might be thinking, "'I have reached it. I have found it.' But he said nothing. Then he put on his hat. "'Bring those parcels,' he said, nodding his head at the things Nancy had done up for them to take to the lighthouse. "'The parcels for the lighthouse men,' he said. He rose and stood in the bow of the boat, very straight and tall, for all the world, James thought, as if he were saying, There is no God. And Cam thought, as if he were leaping into space, and they both rose to follow him as he sprang, lightly like a young man, holding his parcel, onto the rock. CHAPTER Fourteen. He must have reached it, said Lily Briscoe aloud feeling suddenly completely tired out. For the lighthouse had become almost invisible, had melted away into a blue haze, and the effort of looking at it, and the effort of thinking of him landing there, which both seemed to be one and the same effort, had stretched her body and mind to the utmost. Ah, but she was relieved. Whatever she had wanted to give him, when he left her that morning, 
she had given him at last. "'He has landed,' she said aloud. "'It is finished.' Then, surging up, puffing slightly, old Mr. Carmichael stood beside her, looking like an old pagan god, shaggy, with weeds in his hair, and the trident—it was only a French novel—in his hand. He stood by her on the edge of the lawn, swaying a little in his bulk, and said, shading his eyes with his hand, "'They will have landed.' And she felt that she had been right. They had not needed to speak. They had been thinking the same things, and he had answered her without her asking him anything. He stood there as if he were spreading his hands over all the weakness and suffering of mankind. She thought he was surveying, tolerantly and compassionately, their final destiny. Now he has crowned the occasion, she thought, when his hand slowly fell, as if she had seen him let fall from his great height a wreath of violets and asphodels, which, fluttering slowly, lay at length upon the earth. Quickly as if she were recalled by something over there, she turned to her canvas. There it was, her picture. Yes, with all its greens and blues, its lines running up and across, its attempt at something. It would be hung in the attics, she thought. It would be destroyed. But what did that matter? she asked herself, taking up her brush again. She looked at the steps. They were empty. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there, in the centre. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. End of section 16 End of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf Read by Corrie Samuel for more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.